in scripture, song, and story. Saviour, may your voice be heard. Till our eyes behold your glory, give us ears to hear your word. Amen. <clears throat> Nigel, would you please stand up? Thank you. Everybody, look at Nigel. you're all wondering what's going on. So is Nigel. <laughs> There's a tension in the room. What's the vicar going to do? What's he going to ask Nigel to do? Why has Nigel been singled out? Thank you, you can sit down. When life is crowded, to be singled out is to have to deal with a feeling that something might happen. We stop blending in with the crowd around us, and we're asked to be or to do something on our own. And that's the theme of today, the theme of aloneness, the discipline of aloneness, of solitude and stillness. Now, the story of Shibboleth, whatever else it may teach us, and it teaches us quite a lot in terms of the fact that God does really care about the boundaries of his people. But that story might teach us that talking can get us into trouble. There are times when it may be better to stay quiet. And once we're quiet, we have to listen. And once we're listening, then that has a habit of leading to change. I very much want to say that this sermon this morning is a companion piece to a sermon that Nigel Parfit preached on the 20th of June on fellowship and community. And I want to say too that each one of us probably needs to pay attention to where God might want to stretch us, not to the one of those, fellowship or solitude, that we already can incline towards. These are disciplines, and therefore they are about something that doesn't always come naturally. If the one was about seeking out your brothers and sisters, this one is about avoiding them about the discipline of being alone. There are some of you who, when Dave Cooper stood up and did the shibboleth stuff, you thought it was very funny, it's great. But the weird zone for you was when things went quiet and you were asked to be still, and Diana led us in some words from Psalm 42. That was the weirder bit for you. And really, this sermon is for you. Now, we're in church, and we're thinking about God and if we think of solitude, then many of us, probably most of us, think of some time when we have been up uh, a mountain or by a, a, a sunny riverbank messing about in boats or looking on a clear night at the Milky Way. We are all deeply infected with a romanticism of our time. And probably, for many of us anyway, that version of it that's very English. Our poets have preferred the garden of Genesis over the city of Revelation. But that's not biblical. It's true that the garden is a paradise, and the first sign, it's true, of corporate sin is the building of a city. But that's reversed. The first sign of the Holy Spirit at work is the creation of a new fellowship on the day of Pentecost. 
And the day of the Lord is pictured to us in Revelation as a city, a fellowship of peoples. It starts in a garden, but it ends in a city. There's nothing more noble, there's nothing essentially better, certainly not more spiritual about nature. One is nearer God's heart in a garden than anywhere else on earth. No, you're not. Although that was written by a gurney, so there's probably some local connection I've just insulted. The heart of God is probably far more attached, not to a garden, but to some pile of rubbish outside Calcutta where children forage around for trash that they can sell and food that they can eat. Nature is great in its own terms, and we give thanks for God's creation, but it doesn't mean it's more exalted or closer to him. Many of you uh, know that <clears throat> I was able uh, to go with uh, Simon Elphick and spend some time in January as the Anglican chaplain in the Swiss town of Zermatt, which sits in a valley, at the head of which is the Matterhorn. Every morning we'd wake up, and it was still there. And it is breathtaking. But every morning we'd wander through the town, and as some kind of internal exercise, I'd remind myself that every single one of the people we passed was a far more glorious delight for God than that mountain, amazing as it is. And if human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation, then it's not surprising that God is happy to spend time with them. We tend to think of solitude as being about me and nature, but God actually likes us. So God is happy to say, you, come on, let's have some time together. Biblically, solitude is not me and nature. Let's sweep away all that romanticism, which is just a reaction to the Industrial Revolution after all. It's not me and nature. It's me and God. Yes, Jesus withdraws from the crowds in order to be close to God. And yes, that might have been into the mountains, but it only says into lonely places. In the 16th century, Sir Philip Sidney wrote a book in which a forest is described as a desert. Because in those days, if it was deserted of humankind, then it was called a desert. So you could call a forest a desert. And when Jesus retires into lonely places, it doesn't mean they were especially exalted or particularly beautiful. There's no reason to suppose that. It just means he didn't have people there. And you'd have to search hard and long before you found any part of Scripture that was interested in nature as somehow more spiritual. And it's easy to get confused. You know, don't you, those songs that we sing, those um, uh, bits and pieces that we hear from time to time that talk about God and solitude. And it's easy to waffle on about the beauty of solitude in the desert or up a mountain. But if it's about me and God, then one can achieve solitude in a high-rise block of flats at three in the morning. What matters is not that nature is there, but that God is there. Solitude allows us to be faced with the sheer personal encounter with God. It can be delightful, but it is, as Diana suggested earlier, also scary. It's mixed, and that comes through in our reading from Ezekiel. 
If you want to turn to it, uh, if you've closed your Bibles, please do. It's page 831. Can't claim this is a close reading of the text. Ezekiel has seen a a vision of God. There are creatures, uh, but on this occasion they've lowered their wings before the presence of God. And above the creatures is this great expanse. And above that is a throne of sapphire. That, uh, on that throne, seated, is a figure full of fire, with brilliant light around him. And there is a voice, and that voice says to Ezekiel, you, stand up. That's all that son of man means. Just means you, random person over there. Stand up. And no more than Nigel could he know what was coming. The God of heaven and earth is about to address him. Of course he's fallen down in face of that glory. Of course he's fallen down, but where else would he rather be? And it is that that seems to me to be at the heart of solitude. When that figure on the throne says, Son of man, you stand up. Ezekiel at that moment cannot look around for someone else, please, to stand and be commissioned. What we're reading is a kind of terrible loneliness, but also the utter compulsion of the man who at that moment has to face the fact that the God of fire and glory and thunder and holiness is calling him. And that's the way that this theme is a foil, a contrast to fellowship. I don't know whether you remember when Nigel spoke from Acts 2 and that busy scene of remarkable happenings as thousands of people are involved in this new movement of God's Spirit. But this is the very opposite. Ezekiel stands before God in sole responsibility for his life, his own holiness, his own calling, his relationships, his hopes, his fears. It's just Ezekiel and God. Now in the crowd, there's a lot to be said for following Christ together. And there's lots of truth in those New Testament stories and the the many who nevertheless form one body. But there's also the lonely vision that comes to St. Paul in the night when the man of Macedonia says, come over to Macedonia and help us. There's the vision that comes only to Peter of the sheet of apparently unclean animals coming down from heaven and he has to obey it. There are these lonely moments and Jesus seems to seek them out by going to the lonely places. But get this, the things that happen biblically in solitude are always there as far as I can work out for the corporate good. See, the prophet Ezekiel stands up on his own, but then he is given words to speak to the people. Paul is given a new direction in which to take the gospel for others. Peter's vision is more complicated Being Peter, he argues to the voice that has said to him, up Peter, kill and eat these unclean animals. 
He's replied, no way, I have never eaten anything unclean. Now just stop that moment, and that is a moment on which the world turned. The history of the world depended on what happened next. That's how much solitude can matter. Because from that solitary vision, and then from Peter's obedience in accepting that the unclean were now, could now be part of God's own, from that moment flows the first acceptance of a Gentile into God's people, and the world as we know it begins to be formed. Now, when Nigel preached about fellowship and community, I would bet that we quietly divided among ourselves. Those of us who are gregarious and outgoing went, duh, and it's obvious, isn't it? Being together with other people in a great big church, what it's all about. And so we may not have paid very much attention. Others among us went, you have got to be joking. Let me get back to my Sunday papers. Coffee time is my idea of hell. Goodbye. And those may not have paid very much attention. And so I repeat, these are disciplines within the church for a reason. Jesus seems to have been perfectly comfortable in a crowd. He loved being uh, with the big groups. He loved being with smaller groups. He chose 12 of them after all, and he loved being in the very small group with Peter and James and John. He was a people person. But he also made time to withdraw into lonely places. Now, of course, it may also be that he was someone who liked that too. But the point is he did both. Now, I want to be like my Lord. And if I'm to be like Jesus, I need to manage both. I need to do coffee time and I need to withdraw into lonely places. It's not just a matter of doing what I most like. Hear this. Your natural preference at this point is not relevant. It's a good thing in itself. Enjoy it. But it is not relevant to the matter of disciplines. These things demand discipline and effort. You know that moment uh, a little while ago where we sang in, in tune with that music that many of us know quite well, be still for the... and so on. I'm not sure I've ever done that. Have I ever done that? I'm not sure I've inflicted my voice on you, but there you go. Um, and for some of us, that's native territory. And we sort of think that that's what being still is about. But let's remember where those words come from. They come from Psalm 46. When God says to the warring armies, not particularly of Ammonites and Gileadites, but of his people and their opponents... He says, and I'm not going to shout because it'll break the microphone, be still. Stop it. It would be like the equivalent of Diana standing, uh, looking like a Church of England reader in a dress and looking very kind of nice and beginning our service by belting out, quiet! That's what's going on in Psalm 46, when God shouts. That's what's going on in the storm when Jesus picks up 
from Psalm 46 and shouts at the storm, be still, settle down, stop it. Enough of the tumult. I am the Lord, you will be quiet. So don't be put off if you find that your natural preference isn't the sweet, gentle, kind music of our singing. Remember that what God wants to say to your heart and your mind and your life sometimes is be still. Remember, I am the Lord, you are not. I take time out at the start of the day before the house is up and doing. And that's what withdrawing to a lonely place means for me. I make a retreat every now and then to a monastery and I drop into a different rhythm where there's, in a sense, nothing to do. Now, that's, for some of you, a very scary thing, a very clergy thing, but anyone can do it. And you can do it at home. For some of us, let's face it, home is a prison and you can't wait to get out. It's already too quiet and the clock ticks too loudly. But for others, the home is a place of noise and bustle. And even there, if you take control, you can create holy time. Turn off the noise and put the phones on silent. Oh, I wish my teenagers were here right now. (laughs) Close your eyes to the things that cry out to be done. Don't ignore them. Because if you try to ignore them, they will find their way back. Simply commend them one by one as they come into your mind back to God so you can kind of park them with him for a while. And then take a deeper breath and remember in whose presence the life of that house is lived. Read a verse that you know already and live it, imagine it, play with it. Don't read lots and lots of verses and get busy all over again. But read it as though Jesus is beside you And wonder with him what it might feel like, look like, what it might mean for you. And if that's something that you've never done, and you say, well, I'm not not very good at this, this isn't my natural territory, I could do with some help, then tell me. There are other people around I can point you to who've done it for a while, and they'd be happy to help. And it might be in other places too, take the dog for a walk late at night on your street, but walking with Jesus beside you. Don't do it once and give it up because it's the weird zone. It is a discipline, and disciplines need practice. And do these things precisely because you're not just that sort of person. If you want to be like Jesus, is it not at least possible that you might learn something from this man who withdrew to lonely places? Why do we do it? Not because solitude and silence are better or nicer, or more spiritual, but because it puts us in the place of Ezekiel and Peter and Paul and Jesus, in the place of Nigel, called out just for a little while to stand out, readied for something that's personal to him. In the crowd or in the church, it's always possible to hope that someone else will take the lead. Solitude reminds us that we might be sometimes that someone else. I've got a few more thoughts and a prayer. Um, And I suggest that we do the last part with our eyes closed. There will be noises. Again, listen to them, pray for them, park them somewhere else. 
They may be the noise of a child. They may be your own internal rumblings. Don't worry about it. Let me ask a couple of questions. Are you someone who always hopes that there is someone else who knows God because you feel you don't know him enough? And if that's true, solitude may not be something you long for naturally. You'd rather hide in the crowd. But it may be something you need to cultivate and to face precisely in order for God to remind you, and yes, I'm talking to you who have your eyes closed, that you are the apple of his eye and that his call comes to you and that it is for you to face the responsibility of his love and his summons. Almighty God, we read in Scripture that we are wonderfully made. And part of our making are those preferences that lead us to seek out human company, the preferences that lead, it, lead us to avoid it. But you set before us not only the wonders of how we are already made, but the delights of how it can be to be remade in the image of Jesus. So give us courage to reach out to those parts of ourselves that we may not have developed. You have made us as the image of you, invisible, the visible image of an invisible God. Let us face the challenge of your delight and your demand, we pray. Amen. Suggest